This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Melise Afez. Melise is the author of Inventing Laziness, the Culture of Productivity in Late Ottoman Society, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Neither laziness nor its condemnation is a new invention. However, Perceiving laziness as a social condition that afflicts a nation is. In the early modern era, Ottoman political treaties did not regard the people as the source of the state's problems. Yet, in the 19th century, as the imperial ideology of Ottomanism and modern discourses of citizenship spread, so did the understanding of laziness as a social disease that the Ottoman nation needed to eradicate. Asking what we can learn about Ottoman history over the long 19th century, by looking closely into the contested and shifting boundaries of laziness-productivity binary, the author explores how laziness can be used to understand emerging civic culture and its exclusionary practices in the Ottoman Empire. The polyphonic involvement of moralists, intellectuals, polemicists, novelists, bureaucrats, and to an extent, the public, reveals the complexities and ambiguities of this multifaceted cultural transformation. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Melise, welcome. Thank you. Honored to be here. Now, the first question I want to ask is about uh, yourself. So can you tell something about yourself and also about the origins of the book? Uh, sure. I am, um, I'm an Istanbulite, born and raised. I got all my degrees from the United States, though. I got my PhD from uh, UCLA, uh, the history department. And, um, well, currently I'm an associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. And um, about the origins of the book, um, Inventing Laziness, um, it's um, based on my PhD research. Uh, but, uh, of course, I have done uh, so much work, so much research uh, since my PhD when I was conceptualizing or reconceptualizing this book um, 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 in the last <laughs> decade. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, if you're working on laziness, you have to get some, you know, uh, you know, you have to go a bit native on the subject. Um, so... Um, um, I mean, your question is taking me back to the uh, PhD, my PhD years. I was, I remember reading widely 
uh, reading Ottoman um, sources, different texts um, ranging from novels and um, archival documents, uh, pamphlets and textbooks. And um, of course, you know, as a student, you're looking for something that will capture your imagination and that will be your, you know, your first book or your dissertation and then your first book. And then I um, realized connecting all these various texts produced in the long 19th century of the Ottoman Empire and long 19th century for the um, uninitiated is the 19th century of the historians. Um, it lasts for the Ottoman context, it's la it lasts until the end of World War I. So when I say the long 19th century, it is definitely uh, longer than a century. So when I was reading these, you know, long 19th century cultural products of the Ottoman uh, Empire, I, um, I observed a pulsating uh, anxiety about laziness. In all these, you know, very different texts, um, I saw that as a connecting thread. And I thought that, you know, uh, maybe, maybe I should look at this more closely and um, see how, you know, laziness uh, is, is, is conceptualized uh, within the context of reform of the Ottoman Empire. And um, yeah, this is how I started my work on laziness. I must admit that I never thought about laziness as an object of study, but I'm not a cultural historian, so it was really refreshing reading your work. And then when I was reading the book, I actually remember that the first time I bumped into this idea of laziness was um, uh, the book by Benjamin Fortner that years ago um, was a professor at SOAS and I was taking his, uh, his class. And I remember in his book, Imperial Classroom, where he's actually talking about, you know, the question of education, how laziness came up as a subject of discussion. So I feel like, well, actually, I bump into the topic. I just forgot about it. So. This is a book about laziness, but also about productivity. And I think this is a very important combination between the two, laziness and productivity. Can you give us a sense of the context you are looking at and particularly about your goals and the goals of the book? Uh, sure. Um, yes, definitely. This book is about the establishment of the binary, the binary of laziness and productivity, the binary of indolence and 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 industriousness right uh so um in and and how this binary was established in the modern sense in a modern context and and how it was um discursively conceptualized and how it was performed and how it was put into practice in ver in a variety of different ways as as a historian i was uh interested in the process through which uh, these categories, right, laziness and productivity, were formulated in in variety of ways, right, and um, debated again in different ways and contested um, uh, in the late Ottoman society among the late Ottoman uh, people. And uh, when when we are talking about the 19th century, I mean, um, this is something that is commonly known. It is. Um, it was a very difficult century for the Ottomans. Um, many crises were hitting different wars. They were marginalized by the world economic system, um, sovereignty issues, loss of land. But this 
these crises were accompanied by major, major reforms and not merely top-down reforms, but societal transformations. So I, when I was formulating my question about this binary between this very modern <laughs> binary between productivity and, and um, laziness, I wanted to learn about the 19th century Ottoman transformations um, what I, I want, I ask myself, what can we learn if we looked closely into this uh, contested contours of this binary, uh, or contested contours of laziness and productivity? And, and what can we understand? Of course, there are subsequent questions, right? What can we understand about the emerging civic culture? Um, so this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm using this very modern binary laziness and productivity as, as, as a key, or maybe, well, maybe I should not say as a key, but a keyhole through which I look into um, larger cultural uh, transformations that took place in the Ottoman Empire, right? Because, you know, these are, these are very ambivalent terms, right? I mean, lazy, productive, yeah, we all understand different things uh, out of these terms. And who is or what is regarded as productive? Who is deemed as lazy? Or what institutions are deemed as, you know, hotbeds of laziness and they cannot be reformed? I mean, all these are actually taking me into the, the you know, this emerging civic culture, uh, politics of reform, um, which reform is, quote unquote, better than other reforms. Um, should we reform? Should we just get rid of things? So, you know, through this binary, this is what I thought that I should be, you know, exploring. That was, you know, my general uh, goal uh, about the um, long 19th century Ottoman Empire. When it comes to the context, this is how I am thinking, that I have multiple layers of contexts here that I have to deal with, right? The first one is obviously the global context. So I don't want any of my readers to think that, you know, the culture of productivity is actually a, you know, uniquely Ottoman phenomenon. It is, it's not. It's, you know, when we look at the 19th century, late 18th century, 19th century, history, the history of capitalism, right? We cannot do without, you know, talking about that. History of nation states, formation of nation states, the, the political organization of nation states. Uh, and along with, you know, state and nation formation as, you know, as, as mostly as, you know, as a single process. And the history of the valuation of work are inherently connected. All these are these histories are inherently connected. In 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 this context, we know from the works of others that um, you know, major changes are taking place. Right? I mean, one change that I like to mention here is the concept of population. Um, that um, populations are no longer seen as ba tax bases. Right? They are not merely tax paying. You know, crowds but they are um, resources, right? Each and every individual of an, of an imagined nation is seen as a resource, uh, as, you know, as a person who would carry the entire nation. And I, this is something that will, you know, come up again and again in the Ottoman text. And this, you know, workforce will advance the nation's lot in the international competition of the 19th century. So, um, our current understandings of work has a history. 
um, work as a as 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 duty has a history, and this is the larger uh, global context. And when 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 I you know think about the Ottoman context, of course it has to be contextualized within this global. Uh, understanding of you know uh, global changes regarding you know the meaning of work and the meaning of each and every individual's value within the new uh, political system, i.e., the nation-state system. But I don't take this as you know as the end of my story. So things are happening globally. Uh, you know, maybe I should say it out loud. You know, things are happening in the West. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, oh, Ottomans are, you know, copying it or, you know, the things are being conceptualized in a new way in the West and the rest is just borrowing it. So uh, for me, this is the opposite is of, of opposite of what is happening in the Ottoman context. Uh, as you know, you, you read my book. I mean, one of my major arguments, I think, is about um, is about how this culture of productivity is a product of the Ottoman reform period. In, in that sense, I am, you know, of course there are, you know, I mean, you know, if I were an intellectual historian, I would say who first thought about this. But as a cultural historian, I'm not thinking about who first, you know, <laughs> thought about this novel, you know, binary, but I'm thinking about how it became a very widespread anxiety with so many cultural meanings attached to it, right? Uh, so many political meanings attached to it, so many uh, reforms being uh, motivated by it. So it became, when, when, when I think of, of, you know, the cultural productivity within the Ottoman realms, I am thinking of a, um, of a process in which the, Ottoman, uh, the Ottomans, and there are so many, you know, <laughs> variety among them, um, uh, took these, you know, th took this binary, very modern binary, made it Ottoman uh, in the process. Um, so, um, again, you know, going back to the reform period, which is, I think, is my, you know, the Ottoman context uh, in this book. Um, I mean, I conceptualized, you know, I, I looked at the mobilization for work and stigmatization of, of laziness as, as a propeller of change. Uh, hence, you know, part of the attempts to uh, transform uh, different segments of, of, of Ottoman societies. And through it, we can understand the dynamics of the empire um, and how in the process, they these you know Ottomans um, that I look at in the book transformed the old and and Ottomanized the modern. And um, the third issue um, I would like to highlight here is the issue of difference. I think one of the main threads of the book that I wrote has this issue of difference. I mean, when we think about the term laziness. Right. I, we started, you know, with the question like, who is lazy? Right. I mean, we all can, you know, talk about laziness and we all have, you know, certain uh, representations of the, the lazy right in our minds. And uh, before we started our interview, Roberto, we talked about, you know, in the Italian context, you know, who was seen as lazy and within 30 years <laughs> they were no longer seen as lazy, but, you know, because there are some new others being, you know, deemed as lazy. So um, laziness is a code word. 
we have to look at the term, you know, we have to look at the word, um, you know, as a code word. Um, it's a code word for structuring difference. Um, structuring national difference, right? We are hard workers and they are lazy, the others are lazy. Um, class difference, right? The poor is poor because they are lazy. I mean, in the American context, right? We know this very well. Um, if they just worked harder. <laughs> uh, so um, it's a class difference. Uh, it's, you know, about structuring the class difference. It's about, you know, structuring racial difference. Especially in the 19th century, it is so obvious that this is a very racial and racialized issue. Um, um, and um, of course, you know, when you structure uh, difference, you uh, end up with a, a variety of excuses uh, for many forms of subjugation, ranging from colonization to various uh, social reforms in different contexts, including the Ottoman context. So um, I wanted to explore um, through the culture of productivity, the power relations within the empire through this code word through, you know, through this code word in different moments, especially moments of crises or non-crises. Uh, well, if we identify the 19th century as a long, you know, a sense of perception of crises, then, you know, through different moments um, uh, of the, you know, uh, Ottoman 19th century, um, how power relations play uh, when we look at this, you know, issue of laziness. In well, in other, in another, you know, in other words, I wanted to bring the discussions of and um, Ottoman uh, discussions about the Ottoman reform further into the global discussions of modern transformations, uh, both in its very, very Ottoman mechanisms, and you know, we hopefully we'll you know talk about these very Ottoman mechanisms and its impact on a variety of imperial subjects um, in this long 19th century. You have anticipated a lot of uh, questions that I had about uh, your book. And, and you also introduced a very important point about the Ottoman reforms, because maybe a lot of listeners are aware of the fact that for a long time, Ottoman reforms had been seen, judged, discussed, analyzed only through European lenses. So essentially, the argument was like, well, Ottoman reforms were nothing more than European reforms, and the Ottomans just... Uh, borrow them without actually looking at the internal mechanisms that brought uh, the, the Ottomans to perhaps borrow some of the language, but actually to develop internally those reforms. And I think this is an important aspect always to discuss and really put forward. I want to ask something more about uh, your methodological approach, despite the fact that you already mentioned a few things. You obviously dealt with the question of Orientalism, and so I was wondering if you can expand a little bit on that, and also if you can tell us more about the sources that you have used. I'm very curious about where do you find material discussing, you know, productivity, but also laziness. Oh, okay. So yes, I uh, unfortunately I did look at Orientalism. <laughs> uh, we are all familiar, I think, by you know the Orientalist imagery. Uh, of, you know, of this timeless oriental uh, chilling, not doing much, being <laughs> luxuriously lazy. Um, 
so we are familiar with these, you know, representations of the Orientals, of the Ottomans as, you know, people with no sense of time, no sense of urgency and um, rotting in idleness, which actually, you know, gives us this understanding of why we, the Europeans or whomever identifies with the Orientalist imagery, why we are ahead and why they are out of time and 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 lacking beh lagging behind, and um, I I I you know in my I talked about structuring difference. Of course, this is you know the Orientalist imagery is about structuring difference. Um, you know, they are lazy, hence they are you know it is justifiable that we uh, dominate over them either politically or economically or both. So definitely, you know, uh, Orientalism is, is, is um, the Orientalist um, um, uh, arts and texts are, you know, uh, are laden with this, you know, issue of laziness as the problem of this, you know, total utter other. Yet, I did not dwell on Orientalism in my book, if you noticed. I talked about it because you cannot not talk about it, but at the same time, I did not want to, you know, I never conceptualized this book as, you know, as something that has to do with the, you know, refuting <laughs> the Orientalist imagery or, you know, talking about the lazy representations of the lazy people in the Orientalist imagery. Um, for me, I mean, I, I, I'm not the first one to say this, but, you know, for, I, this is how I approached all that, you know, um, Orientalist imagery tells more uh, tells us more about the Europeans who produced them uh, than the Ottomans. Be and because I was interested in the Ottoman transformations, I did not want to, you know, dwell too much on the Orientalist representation. And I, um, this is, you know, um, um, why I talk about the imagery. And of course, there are, you know, this, these are pervasively dominant images. Uh, and definitely, you know, there are some members of the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman elite, um, 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 being disappointed by this, you know, by this reality that, the, the, by this conceptualization, not disappointed by their perception of the Ottoman society as, you know, Oriental lazies, lazy people. Uh, but, um, but, you know, this kind of a dis disappointment in, a, you know, in, in narrow circles cannot tell, tell us more about, you know, about the realities, the experiences, the day-to-day -day, um, um, uh, workings of the general transformation. And, you know, I talked about this pulsating anxiety, popularization of this anxiety. So, um, I wanted to um, not dwell on the Orientalist imagery, but, you know, just address the issue in my introduction and then, you know, dive into the uh, variety of Ottoman sources. And yeah, um, again, you know, um, going back to your question about, you know, the sources, um, you would find the issue of laziness and productivity in, in, an, in, in most unexpected texts. I'm going to be talking about, you know, morality books, uh, I hope, in this, you know, conversation, because uh, they, I mean, it's it's one of my sources that I looked at, um, novels, pamphlets, um, 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 bureaucratic records, and so many diverse, you know, uh, products of this period. 
talk about it and um, popularize it, moralize it, politicize it in a variety of ways. And, and I thought they should be the center of my uh, research. And, and you talk about, uh, you, you just mentioned uh, uh, books about morality. So in chapter one, you discuss the question of moralizing productivity. So I was wondering, can you speak more about moralists, their work, and perhaps also if you can expand a little bit about uh, the role of Islam in the evolving work ethic? Sure. Um, as I said, you know, um, I wasn't expecting to find so much <laughs> about this, these issues in the morality text. Because, okay, let's admit that, you know, when I say morality books, um, you would think about, you know, these cute little books about virtues. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, or really, you would think them as, you know, timeless. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, it is not uncommon that historians talk about these morality texts as, you know, continuation of a certain uh, age-old Ottoman Islamic tradition. And... Um, and you know they 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 are actually <laughs> duped by the authors, so they are you know in a, in a sense you know not that guilty because most of the authors of the morality sex, and I will definitely you know tell you more about these texts. But the authors do start, you know, in the first couple of pages, do start their text saying that um, we are not adding anything new to the tradition. And then they mentioned the 16th century, 10th century moralists in their first pages. They're only, the only difference their work is introducing is the only newness, the no novelty that their book is introducing is the fact that it is written in a simple language as opposed to the you know, older um, canons of the tradition. If you quit there, if you don't read the rest of the book, you would think that they are quite traditionalist books. Um, but, you know, in reality, they are not. <laughs> so let me give you um, a, a general sense. Uh, let me, you know, um, uh, give you some information about these texts that I'm talking about. So in the last 70 years or so of the Ottoman Empire, there were hundred, more than 150. I, I, I mean, um, there are some repetitions. Some books are published in, you know, under different titles. Uh, so somewhere more than 100 books. Let's, you know, let's say that. Um, um, on morality. And these are only morality books. They're, I mean, morality is discussed in different, um, I mean, moral issues are discussed in different, you know, uh, sources, but only morality books, they are, you know, conceptualized as books on morality. There are more than a hundred uh, uh, of them. And again, I have to uh, uh, address this limitation. Um, when I say more than a hundred, I'm addressing a hun uh, more than a hundred Turkish in Arabic letters, meaning Ottoman letters. They, I mean, I am not counting. I don't know the numbers. And I, you know, my recent research is more about, you know, um, about exploring uh, different uh, um, alpha uh, about morality books in different alphabets because you know Turkish is only one language spoken in the Ottoman Empire and um, uh, the Arabic letters of Turkish, uh, i.e., the Ottoman alphabet, is uh, one of the alphabets of the empire. And and there are, um, as I find recently for my you know recent work. Uh, there are books written in um, different alphabets in Turkish, 
on morality. Uh, and, you know, there are many morality books written in Arabic and different languages in um, Ladino, uh, a lot of them in Ladino. Uh, so, you know, um, when I'm talking about morality books, I, in my book, because of my language limitations, I, um, I, I covered the morality books of uh, the 19th century, long 19th century Ottoman Empire, written in Turkish using Ottoman alphabet. So, um, so let me talk about the authors. Um, before the 19th century, most of the authors are um, scholars, uh, high bureaucrats. Uh, as opposed to that uh, tradition, we have an expansion of authorship in the 19th century, um, what I call uh, the lowbrow intellectuals writing morality books. Um, doctors and, and, and uh, soldiers, uh, teachers, bureaucrats, mid-level, low-level bureaucrats writing morality books um, and addressing, you know, moral issues in these books. Uh, def I mean, very few members of ulema wrote morality books. So, yeah. Um, uh, let me give you one example, which would make, make you know, which would uh, um, be an interesting one, I hope. Um, Ali Kemal, um, Boris Johnson's great grandfather, right? The polemicist, the politician, right? He wrote a morality book in his 20s. So he's one of the morality book authors, right? So um, uh, again, you know, um, this is an old genre, right? It goes in Islam. I mean, when we think about the Islamic tradition, it goes back to the first, you know, second century of Islam. Uh, but it, of course, you know, in, in that you know, incarnation even, it's a very composite uh, genre, right? It borrows, you know, it is, um, it, it's, you know, sources are um, um, the, um, the Greek tradition uh, and the um, Indian tradition all brought together within this first century of Islamic expansion. And this is what we think as the Islamic morality of ninth century, but it is also very composite. So it's not the first time we are seeing composite works on morality. It has happened before. So it's not very, in that sense, it's not a very, very modern phenomenon that we have very sources of authority, which I will discuss uh, in these, you know, morality books. Uh, it's not merely a 19th century phenomenon. This has happened before through, throughout time that, you know, different sources of authority made their way into the, um, what now we call the Islamic canons of morality. So um, one, um, I mean, these books became quite popular. They're po I mean, there, there should be a reason why a mid-ranking bureaucrat would f sit down um, you know, uh, coming from, you know, uh, uh, from a, a, an urbanite family, writing on morality, um, there should be a reason. These are, you know, popular books. Um, and uh, they are read as, um, you know, as books, as public, you know, um, like common, uh, for common audience and also for textbooks. So I have to, of course, uh, talk about the um, educational reforms and how morality in the 19th century. So, you know, I want to, you know, emphasize the modernness of this. In the 19th century, morality became part of the curriculum in the 19th century Ottoman uh, schools. So an old genre, an age-old genre, um, 
which has been always popular, right? Uh, even the old canons, um, when you look at different, you know, libraries around the Middle East, we will find copies of these books. So it has been a popular genre. And a, um, th this is, you know, this becomes an asset for the 19th century moralists. They are building upon a tradition that has been popular, that is um, a very um, seen as, you know, indigenous. We are not talking about novels, right? Which is a novelty of the 19th century. We are not talking about plays, theatrical plays. We are not talking about journals and newspapers, which are very, you know, for the entirety of the world, very 18th, 19th century phenomena. We are talking about an age-old genre, uh, but they're saying very novel things within this old genre. Uh, the content is um, very different. The authorship is different, right? The content is different, um, and uh, the, f uh, the, the, the format is also different. Previously, um, mostly uh, the, the morality books of the pre-19th century say, you know, famous 16th century examples are based on uh, virtue ethics. In the 19th century, something brand new shows up in the morality books, um, the concept of duty, the ontological ethics. And the, 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 this, you know, the ontological ethics, basically duty-centered ethics, is a modern phenome phenomenon all around the world. And I, I understand it as, you know, as uh, within the context of the formation of the nation states, uh, because, you know, a new morality or a new political reality, duty-centered ethics, rather than quite individualized, individualized uh, understanding of virtue ethics, which goes back to Aristotelian times. But duty uh, ethics is something that, um, um, well, that centers on the concept of duty. And if you look at the Ottoman, 19th century Ottoman morality books, it's uh, basically how they formulated um, their books, basically um, duties to self, duties to um, your, um, your nation, right? All very new words, duties to your state, right? Duties to humanity. Right, this kind of a duty-based conceptualization is something uh, of a novelty uh, of the 19th century, and um, many of the 19th century moralists design their books based on this concept of duty. And within this concept of duty, they talked about work as a duty, as 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 a duty for yourself. It's you know, if I may use the word, it's part of self-improvement. <laughs> a very modern language, um, as part of uh, improvement of your nation's lot. In this case, the emerging uh, concept of the Ottoman imperial nation. I, I, you know, it's, it's a nation. It's conceptualized as, as a very diverse um, uh, nation, but still a nation in the 19th century. So um, laziness in this greater scheme is not merely a vice, which used to be with before the 19th century. It's not merely an individual problem. It is actually a societal, a social problem. It's also a disease 
So if an individual is lazy, it is actually carrying, this person is carrying the, you know, this uh, disease of laziness affecting everyone else, affecting the entire nation. It is um, anti-modern, anti-progress, anti-nation, and anti-Islam to be not productive. And productivity, on the other hand, industriousness, on the other hand, is a national duty. Uh, is um, not merely something that you have to do for yourself and earn money and provide for your family. It is beyond that. It has national meanings. It has social meanings. You have to advance your nation's lot within the civilizational scheme that everyone is buying in the 19th century. And... Um, you have, I mean, these, you know, morality books talk about going beyond subsistence. Most of the time you would see, you know, work in the pre-19th century morality books or any book work as, you know, an issue of subsistence. Kesb, that goes back to the 9th century, 10th century, the Arabic concept of kesb. Um, it is in the 19th century, it is you don't only work for yourself or for your family. Your work, regardless of what you do, is a national issue, is, is, is an Islamic issue. It's a very, you know, the, the work that you have to do to advance your nation's lot is also an Islamic um, um, duty. Uh, when I was reading the book, I, at some point, I started thinking about the fact that we spent so much time looking at uh, British Victorian era is this era of uh, moralizing nation, you know, all of the rules that were implemented at a societal level and a personal level. And then I realized that you have similar processes going around all around the world. I mean, including the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the, the, the terms might be slightly different and they involve Islam instead of Christianity, for instance, when it comes to religion. But the ideas were the same. You have to do it... Uh, not just for yourself, but for the nation, this idea of duty, right? First your duty and then, you know, whatever else. So I found it interesting where we're still into this uh, uh, sort of a paradigm of looking at, uh, you know, British history and the Victorian era and then morality for that specific word, sort of the uh, Anglo-Saxon word, but actually there are similar processes going around all of the other countries and regardless of religion and languages and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it is, um, I mean, <laughs> there are a variety of ways you can look at this, right? You can just call this westernization, and I would, you know, uh, <laughs> I would definitely oppose that idea. Uh, because even in whatever we conceptualize as West is going through these changes. The ontological morality is, um, it captures the imagination of people who are already imbued with this idea of nation, right? I mean, if you take out all these two, what you know, historians call the twin processes, right? Capitalist world economy, along with the political reorganization of societies through, you know, uh, within, the, uh, within the mechanisms of nation states, requires a new morality. If we look at it through these modern processes, then we understand that, you know, where it originates, it hasn't, doesn't have a, you know, very important, it, it is not that important if we find it here or there first, but rather than, you know, rather than that, we have to tie these two experienced processes. 
Um, and um, you asked me about the Islamization of these word concepts. Um, there are multiple levels that they do this. They, um, they Islamize modern concepts. Um, I mean, Islamic work ethic is now a very, it sounds very authentically Islamic. <laughs> I mean, let me, let me give you this little detail that really surprised me. I went through the pre-19th century morality books to see if the term duty, vazife in Ottoman, um, appears in them. It doesn't. As far as I know, it doesn't. And we cannot even imagine um, a world without the concept of duty, right? Moral duties, right? So it's, um, but it sounds like today, it sounds like, you know, so deeply rooted in the tradition, in the Islamo-Ottoman tradition, uh, because these people made it so. Because these people took these terms, popularized it, normativized it. Uh, I mean, the concept of work, the concept of laziness, normativized, moralized, Islamicized um, in, in, in these books. So they take, you know, uh, modern concepts and they Islamicize them. They take um, Islamic terms and they transform them um, by um, arguing that they have been accumulating wrong meanings in the last couple of centuries. So we have to purge them and go back to their original meaning, right? Um, resignation, one of the terms that appears, tawakkul, resignation. Resignation doesn't mean that you are, you should be a fatalist, lazy person. You Resignation means that you do everything you can and then hope for the best. You work harder even. Not hard, but harder even. So, so many of these words that are, are, you know, traditionally in, you can find in the traditional texts are reconceptualized. They are re-Islamicized. So these authors are telling, you know, their audience what real Islam is. So of course, you know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a power uh, position, <laughs> of course. Um, so this is, you know, how, why I argue that they, uh, created a um, a new kind of knowledge, um, very modern, very Ottoman, and at times very uh, quote unquote Islamic. It's fascinating, and, and I want to move, uh, you know, forward uh, thinking about the book, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about the question of criminalization of laziness. And so, can you speak about the process? of criminalizing laziness, particularly in the context uh, of the modernizing Ottoman Empire and the effects on laziness itself. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about the role of the Tanzimat reforms. You already mentioned that earlier. And uh, expanding, if you can, uh, also into the period of the so-called uh, Young Turks era. Sure. Um, the, um, I mean, criminalization of laziness, um, um, it, it, let me start with an anecdote. When I was uh, writing this chapter, I um, I had to send it as one of my sample chapters. So I gave it to um, to a professional editor, and the professional editor, um, because you know, I, I this is not my native language, and I thought that you know um, this person would go through it and you know correct my um, my uh, English mistakes, especially with the article the because. 
I have it everywhere. And when I, when I really need it, I don't have it. So <laughs> as a native Turkish speaker, I'm sure some people would relate to this. So um, the, the chapter came back with, you know, very helpful recommendations and corrections. But I use the term committing laziness because, you know, it was criminalized. And this editor took a note saying uh, you cannot commit laziness. It's it's not it's not how it is used. But no, no, I mean, you know what? I am the historian of the laziness of, of laziness, so I am going to keep using it. So, yes, um, laziness became, you know, you know, I talked about the morality books. I talked about how, you know, they normativize this approach against uh, laziness. They nor uh, they they moralize. They 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 are the main source source of moralization of work and productivity, in very ambiguous uh, 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 terms. But I wanted to look at somewhere, you know, some institutions, some uh, social reality in which I would see how this changed people's lives, how this affected day to day experiences of people. And I thought, you know, as um, uh, the, I thought that I should look at the Ottoman bureaucracy, not as an institutional historian, thank God, <laughs> but as a cultural historian. Uh, well, you know, bureaucracy is not always the most flowerful <laughs> institution to look at. Uh, so I looked at the Ottoman bureaucracy to see how in the expanding um, um, institutions of the Ottoman state, the issue of laziness became a tangible, targetable process, concept and how it became a crime, how it became a crime that had real uh, results, ramifications for each and every bureaucrat, even on the page, like even on the, in, in theory that this is actually something that you can you lose your job uh, uh, for. So I looked at the Ottoman bureaucracy and it's interesting because, you know, I'm sure most of the audiences would, you know, uh, remember that the Ottoman Empire is actually shrinking in the 19th century, losing lands um, to through, you know, colonization, independence movements. The actual geography, actual map of the Ottoman Empire is, is shrinking, but the state functions along the modern lines is expanding. And bureaucracy is going to expand exponentially in the 19th century, especially before, it starts before, but especially after the Tanzimat reorganizational reforms uh, in, in um, uh, 1830s and on. So when, when, you know, when we think about an expanding bureaucracy, expanding state structures, expanding unprecedented levels of, of numbers of bureaucrats, it, it, it is, you know, one of the burning issues. How do we make these armies of bureaucrats uh, efficient, hardworking, producing, you know, whatever the bureaucrats produce, right? How do we target the issue of laziness? So I wanted to juxtapose this, you know, day-to-day day reality of the bureaucrats with the um, with the uh, moral, with you know, this vague languages of the morality books. So, if you're a student of Ottoman history, you would definitely know about the image of the Ottoman bureaucrats, just 
you know, um, taking their time. Uh, I mean, bureaucrats, bureaucracy in the modern sense is actually very, you know, I mean, when, when it, you know, when, when, of course, all these, you know, nation states, France, England, they're going through the same um, expansion of state bureaucracies and immediately this question comes up, right? Um, we're going to pay these people on a monthly basis and expect them to do something because, you know, payment is something that you get at the end of a task. But in the modern sense, you make thousands of people salaried and how do you expect? So from the beginning, from the get go of the bureau histories of bureaucracy all around the world, it is, you know, it's an in the modern sense, it's a burning issue of how we are going to make these people efficient, run a state in a modern you know, way. So Ottoman bureaucrats compared to this, you know, idealized um, concept of factory. And I think, you know, the, People, you know, made that mistake in the 19th century that, you know, factories work in a very efficient way with the machines and humans all, you know, trapped in one or forced to be trapped in, in one, you know, space. So it, it gave them an idea that, you know, we can replicate this in uh, state institutions, right? We can replicate this machinery in the state. And I think it was something from the beginning, something that disappointed a lot of people that you cannot make bureaucracies work as factories. Um, so Ottoman images of the bureaucrats from the novels, theatrical plays, you know, from the, the documents, archival documents I looked at is just, you know, inefficient army of people not doing much, just pushing paper. I mean, we all know what bureaucrats do in, you know, in our 21st century lives, right? You wait and you wait and you go back and you wait a lot, even in a you know very digitized world as we are in. So I looked at the Ottoman bureaucracy to explore, you know, the daily practices, the daily ramic or the the the, the tangible ramic ramifications of being perceived as lazy. Um, and this is what I call criminalization of laziness. And there are so many reforms. Uh, so many regulations, so many Nizam Nameh's that come out of the Ottoman state that um, introduces um, these newer concepts, pushes the bureaucrats to be more efficient and, and um, um, punishes those who are seen as deemed as lazy, inefficient, slow. There are so many different words that they use. So, um, um, don't want to go back too much into the late 18th century, but something within the process, it's not, you know, it's not an on and off switch. Uh, that's, you know, something within the process that we see, um, process of, you know, uh, of reorganizing state institutions, that we see uh, the concept of lazy uh, being an abstract notion in the bureaucratic documents. It's not, you know, lazy Melis or lazy Roberto, like in the 18th, 17th century, we would see the term lazy, but it's always describing a very particular person. Now it is this vague, abstract notion of laziness within the kalemie, within the bureaucracy. So um, how did I address that? I mean, I don't want to go too much into detail. There is this Personnel Records Commission uh, in 1879. It predates that. 
the, the, the crime of laziness, identifying the crime of laziness predates that. But with the Personnel Records Commission of 1879, we have, you know, we have the consequences of committing laziness uh, in a much clearer way. Um, let me give you a couple of examples here. Um, uh, bureaucrats are, you know, um, dismissed with the accusation of being lazy um, or their salaries were cut. Uh, with the accusation of being lazy and slow and inefficient, uh, they were demoted for for a um, you know couple of years. Demoted with that accusation, their salaries would go down. Um, they were promoted because they were seen as productive and efficient members of bureaucracy. Of course, you know these are code words. As a historian, I should always, you know, warn, uh, you know, my audiences that, you know, I don't believe that these people who were deemed as lazy were lazy. I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, this is, um, you know, there are political reasons why one should be losing their job or just, you know, monetary reasons why someone should be, you know, dismissed. Um, but um, I am, you know, I did not look at how these, you know, reforms of increasing efficiency um, were actually functioning. I looked at how this, you know, anxiety about laziness, anxiety about productivity became so mundane, became so um, 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 experienced in such a detailed level for each and every individual bureaucrat. So I am not looking at, you know, were they successful? Because if I were an institutional historian, I would just say, did they increase the efficiency by doing, you know, by criminalizing laziness? I'm not asking that. I'm asking how this, how did this contribute to the popularization of the anxiety of laziness within the Ottoman realms? And if we think about the thousands of thousands of bureaucrats, especially um, not coming from high bureaucratic families, but coming from all over the empire, um, going into the workforce of the Ottoman bureaucracy, you know, Ottoman bureaucracy, being imbued with these understandings that, at least nominally, that they have to be efficient. That there is some, there are some consequences because there are inspectors. This commission would send inspectors, and I mean, one example. I mean, I don't want to go too much into detail. This, but one example. One guy says, "I have been sick, hence my absence, my absence uh, from work." And uh, there's a doctor sent to this guy's home. I found this in the archives, and I'm reading. I'm like, "Oh my God!" The the guy, the doctor, actually goes to the door of this supposedly sick bureaucrat comes back and writes a report saying that no he wasn't at home he you know <laughs> he's like chilling in the coffee shop somewhere um so basically you know um this you know they are tracking it as much as they can um they're they're trying to track down you know inefficient members and they're not taking you know these excuses of being sick or you know being attending a funeral um or you know um um uh, even if they come their efficiency is 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 uh questioned and based on their efficiency levels they uh get you know um demoted or you know removed uh from uh, their work. But um, I want to highlight, before I move on, I want to highlight two issues. One, that I thought this was a very, you know, revealing uh, um, 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 examination for me because I realized that the bureaucrats talk back. 
I didn't expect to find all these archival, you know, petitions written by the bureaucrats saying that, you know, please clear my sigil, please clear my personnel record from that accusation of being lazy. I haven't been lazy. I have been the most productive person ever. And I, um, it is because of your high expectations. So basically there's, you know, it's not this kind of a top down accusations of laziness being thrown around. The bureaucrats are writing back. They are telling what they think um, real work is, what should be the expectations. I mean, one judge writes back, a, a, a local judge, and says, do you want me to just uh, glance over the files, the dossiers, or do you want me to go into detail and make, you know, a deal, make just uh, decisions based on these folders? If you want me to be, if you want me to go faster, I can, but then I don't think you should expect any justice from this process. So this local judge is writing back and telling the authorities that that, that they have very different ideas of what productivity and efficiency is. The second issue that I want to um, highlight before we move on is, is that the morality book authors, many of them, uh, and I was really surprised to find out uh, this uh, reality, that they were bureaucrats. In one part of their life, or, you know, maybe career bureaucrats, but then I thought that, you know, writing these ambiguous texts about glorification of work and productivity not as a you know as, as, as a self um as a self-centered act but as a national act uh coming out of these moralists it is not that they read french books they visited british cities they it is not you know the source of this kind of an internalization is not somewhere you know, out of the imperial lands, maybe it is also, but they have experienced the importance of work while being bureaucrats, while being subjected to, you know, inspections, while, you know, reading all these, you know, regulations and, 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 and uh, laws on bureaucracy about laziness. So the Ottoman roots, or maybe I should say partaking within these reformed institutions made them, um, experience these new concepts of work and uh, these new understandings of lazy. So in chapter three, you talk about representation of individuals, uh, which you define as industrials or dandy. And I'm very fascinated by the figure of the Ottoman dandy. Can you tell us a little bit more about this character and its representation in Turkish literature? Uh, sure, I mean, that was a you know fun chapter to write about. <laughs> Um, so, the, the, yeah, as you said, there are, you know, um, novels produced in the 19th century, especially in the 1870s and on, we have this uh, duo, as you mentioned, the duo of um, um, uh, dandies uh, as opposed to productive, um, duty conscious <laughs> uh, people. So, you know, when I was reading these novels, I thought that they complemented the you know, the work of the moralists, the, you know, actual criminalization of laziness, but it takes it to another level, right? Because it is in the imagined uh, literary world, right? In the, in the imaginations. And it makes these, you know, dandies, um, um, uses, these novels use ridicule, uh, ridiculization of dandies 
throughout their novels. So it's not merely that they are getting fined and they are getting, you know, demoted as a, as bureaucrats, but they are uh, in the imagine imaginary imagined world of the novelists. They also get, you know, to be ridiculed and marginalized, and and um, they were made fun of. Um, so yeah, um, um, there's that, you know. Um, duo of lazy dandy person as opposed to the productive duty conscious hardworking um community conscious uh conscious of their duties uh, within a nation so the dandies i wrote against this understanding that the dandy represents a traditional figure um so yeah uh, like you know someone who's lazy and never been um enlightened about the importance of uh, work and productivity so as a you know i wrote against that because most of the dandies that i read about and you know there are so many different dandies we have to acknowledge that in the novels there are some no some novels that talk about these dandies as educated people um but their sin is that they are educated they they should have known better. They should know of their duties. That they don't know of their duties. They disregard their duties. It's not that they have never been initiated into this duty consciousness. They have been, but they refuse. So I argue that the dandies are also very modern uh, personalities. They are marginalized. Their lifestyle is seen in the margins. They are orthodox. And but they are um, very 19th century people. Uh, they don't, you know, uh, or the hardworking people sometimes are represented as, you know, traditional hardworking Ottomans. But no, they are also, you know, products of the 19th century uh, uh, changing structures. So um, I thought that, you know, fiction would give us a very different realm of uh, establishing difference. And I, you know, this um, um, duo, uh, of, you know, dandy figure as opposed to the productive time, money conscious, duty conscious person gives us a different um, uh, level of structuring difference. I must admit that in my head, I, I was thinking about the Ottoman dandy as someone, you know, coming from some wealthy environment, dressed always nicely, fashionable, sitting in a nice cafe in Istanbul, drinking coffee, smoking cigar, and getting all of these comments about you're lazy, essentially. But that was very much my idea of a Italian dandy, which is a, a common uh, character, and you can find particularly in some specific cities. So the, I, I guess there are some parallels, but also m many uh, uh, differences between the two. Yeah, they are a representation, they, are, they represent um, a different kind of modernity. They, they, they are, you know, they're part of an, uh, um, well, how do I say this? They came a bit too early. They are part of the consumption part of the modern era that we are going to see more and more in this starting the second decade of the 20th century. They came a bit early. Hence, they are marginalized. Hence, they are seen as unorthodox. Uh, but, you know, they, they just come a bit you know earlier than their time. So moving to the last chapter of the book, you draw from writings of... Uh different genres of reformists and polemicists, all in the last decade of uh, Ottomans Empire's existence. Productivity and laziness were indeed uh, a divisive political issue, and 
or issues if we take them separately. Can you speak about these debates? And perhaps you can focus on the question of jihad against uh, factories of laziness. All right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from the beginning, I, I think I mentioned that, you know, laziness is a is a cold word. It's a very political word. And after 1908, um, the um, the debates about um, well, because after 1908, there are you know less uh, uh, pressures on on Ottoman um, um, press. Uh, so there's you know a variety of debates take place in the public sphere about you know how to improve, how to you know eradicate laziness basically, and all the in that chapter I narrowed my focus down to um, known reformists. Um, and, and their work and their approach to this issue uh, that they conceptualized as a hindrance to the progress of Ottoman Empire, basically laziness. So there I looked at, you know, reformists um, from a variety of different ideological um, backgrounds. And of course, I have to identify, identify that many of these reformists move so comfortably through different ideological positions. So I don't like to call them, some of them as, you know, Islamists, some of them as Westerners. So uh, because they, they move a lot uh, through, you know, they, they, they are, you know, these, you know, uh, ideologies have, you know, very porous uh, borders. And um, you, you see, you know, um, one person um, in one book looking like a hardcore, you know, Islamist in another, you know, article there, actually, you can label them easily as, you know, Westernist, but, you know, I wanted to go beyond these labels. Um, and I looked at the reformists um, of the post-1908, or discussions of these reformists regarding the laziness issue. And um, the, um, well, let me start by saying that all of them, regardless of their ideological position, regardless of what they envision for the future of the empire, and actually they are talking about the future of the empire, um, regardless of, you know, their positions, they all share this understanding that laziness needs to be eradicated. There is no question there that they, uh, they, they are all on the same page. Coming from the you know 19th century transformations, they, are, uh, they don't have, um, you know, differences uh, on that issue, that laziness is a major problem, is a national problem. It has to be eradicated. How do you do that? Right? How are you going to eradicate laziness? Or who are the lazy? Or what institutions are producing laziness? Then, you know, I, that's why I called, you know, this chapter pulsation of laziness. Although, you know, I have to admit that, you know, it's just in the narrow sense of politicization of laziness because it has always been political. Uh, but in the narrowest sense of politicization of laziness uh, happens in that, you know, a post-1908 period. Uh, so um, now that, you know, by 1908, we have this legitimate language that if something is laziness, it has to be either reformed or eradicated. Um, we have reformists using that already established language against their political rivals. So, um, I, you know, let me give you an example. What do you do with the madrasas? 
Right. What do, and you know most of the people in 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 you know in republic in the Republic of Turkey would think that these are you know very republican issues. Uh, you know, shutting down of the madrasas in 1924 is a republican thing that the Ottomans never thought of. They did. They actually um, had debates about what to do with the madrasas, and some reformists saw that madrasas are actually. Um, unreformable. They are um, hotbeds of uh, idlers. Um, they basically they are, you know, um, these these are uh, um, um, uh, factories that produce laziness. I mean, I don't want to go too much into the, you know, history of madrasas, especially in the late 19th century. We have the increased number of students or perceived increased number of students, because if you're a madrasa student, you don't go to you. You don't you know, you're exempt from military service. So it became like a refuge, uh, especially given that the Ottoman Empire was, you know, part of uh, many wars in this period. So there, you know, um, madrasas are on the radar of many reformists, but what do you do with these madrasas? Are they reformable or not, is the question. And the, 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 the phrase that you mentioned, the jihad against, uh, what was it? The jihad against madrasas or? Against factories of laziness. Factories of laziness. And madrasas are, you know, conceptualized by a group of reformists as, you know, uh, factories or la of laziness. Sufi lodges are conceptualized as factories of laziness. Here, I would like to, you know, make this remark that um, if you know anything about the history of the Republic of Turkey, you know that, you know, factories, these supposed factories of laziness were shut down in the Republican period as part of them, you know, um, Ataturk's reforms. Uh, Medreses were shut down, Sufi lodges were shut down. But I wanted to show that these discussions, this, this writing into this blasphemous language of laziness took place way before in the Ottoman Empire, before the Republic of Turkey. And these debates um, basically um, um, made the Sufi lodges and the madrasas, because you cannot shut down the bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot do that. You get you have to only reform them, but there's you know not much you can do. But you can get rid of these you know uh, institutions. Uh, that that was you know uh, suggested by some of the reformists, and and hence, because I thought that you know because of this kind of writing into blas into the blasphemous language of laziness was so prominent. It took over so many decades in the last, you know, decades of the Ottoman Empire that when it really happened, not many defended these institutions, even those people who were, you know, products of these institutions. They, I mean, this is, you know, how I wanted to show the um, dominance, the centrality, I should say, centrality of the concept of productivity and the importance of this fight against laziness, um, both within you know the within the Ottoman period and in the post-Ottoman period. One last question, one that takes us to the modern day, the contemporary. In the pre-Erdogan era, Ottoman society was definitely the ultimate lazy society. Can you give us a sense of the current changes and if there have been changes? To this perception? 
Oh, this is this is a great question, Roberto. I, I, I really it made me think about, you know, how I would respond to this. Um, I mean, let me just start saying that, yeah, sure, you, you know, cultural productivity uh, outlived the empire. <laughs> we don't have the empire, but the cultural productivity is still alive and kicking. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we were just talking about this, right? Because being accused of laziness became a political language. It was also turned against the empire that, you know, it came out of, right? Um, both, you know, it was... It was turned against the empire of, of the Ottoman Empire, both as a political entity uh, that no longer existed, right, in the 20th century and the 21st century, but as a representation of something non-modern, right? Because if they are lazy, the Ottoman Empire, if it was, was it, if it was conceptualized as a lazy, you know, uh, empire, it was non-modern and anti-progress. Um, this is something um, I, I think you're referring to this um, Republican Republican founding fathers and how they portrayed the Ottoman Empire. But I want to take a step back and go back to the Young Turks. When they took, uh, when they came to power, they dethroned a sultan that ruled more than 30 years, Abdul Hamid II. And when they did, they portrayed that 30 years of the sultanic rule as the ultimate lazy period, despotic and lazy, uh, or connected in, in such a way that, you know, despotism um, allowed um, laziness to flourish. So young Turks did that with their ancien regime, with the Abdul Hamid's regime. So there is already th that tradition. And the Republican uh, um, founding fathers, if I may say so, uh, came in. It's too uh, male dominant of a language. I apologize. But when the Republican, um, uh, when the Turkey, when the Republic of Turkey was established, <coughs> excuse me, when the Republic of Turkey was established, they used the same. Uh, strategy, not for the Sultan this time, not for a Sultanic period, but, but for the entirety of the Ottoman period. But how pervasive was this kind of a conceptualization of the Ottoman Empire as the ultimate laziness? So I am not sure if I buy into that kind of a pre-Erdogan, post-Erdogan, because it, there has always been different political communities within the Republic of Turkey that conceptualize the Ottoman Empire in different ways. And the way they conceptualize the Ottoman Empire says more about them, their national politics, their international context, than the empire itself. And the current idealization of the Ottoman Empire, I think you're referring to that, the current, I mean, what some people call the Ottomania through, you know, TV shows and everything. Um, I think, you know, it is better to look at these as saying more about how the people of Turkey are, you know, trying to connect with a certain legacy, how they are thinking about their position within the international and national, you know, arena, then saying something about the Ottomans themselves. This was Melissa Fez, author of Inventing Laziness, 
the culture of productivity in late Ottoman society. Published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Melise, thank you so much. Thank you.